Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you are listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. I've been on LinkedIn for a while, and one of the reasons why I'm on LinkedIn, kind of, you know, you're like, Father, why are you on LinkedIn? You're, you're not looking for a job or whatever. I, I've noticed a few things. Uh, the first thing I've noticed is that when I share content there, such as podcast episodes like this one, sometimes other entities, other radio stations or podcast networks or whatever, kind of will vet some of my interviews and they will uh, use them and, and recruit the guests that I've had. So I found that it's been uh, a good way to promote my own show and guests, but also that it's been a way that I've been invited onto shows as well, where I've posted a link to something I've written and then, you know, relevant radio calls and says, we'd like to interview you about this. And, you know, being connected with Drew Mariani on LinkedIn, that's really the only place you would see it. And uh, so so I've found LinkedIn to be a very good place, uh, good networking. And I guess that's the whole intention of it. And that's how really I came across today's guest and interview, though we have crossed paths in real life, though I don't remember it, uh, admittedly. Uh, but I kept seeing James Hanna post a biography that he wrote, and it's called The Remarkable Life of Bishop Bonaventure Broderick, Exile, Redemption, and a Gas Station. What people probably don't know about me is I have a great fascination with gas stations. My grandfather used to own Looney Standard Oil in Oconto, Wisconsin. So just because I have a picture of him in front of the gas pump, and because it's kind of a part of my family history, I've just been drawn to uh, gas stations of antiquity and gas pumps and such. So, so when I saw that in the title, I'm like, I need to know more. I reached out to Mr. Hanna. He graciously sent me a copy of the book. I didn't even have to buy it. And uh, I was able to read it while I was on a retreat and learn more about Bishop Bonaventure. And I thought, what a great conversation that we could have about this American ecclesiastic and uh, a beautiful story, as you mentioned, exile and redemption in the subtitle. So thanks so much, uh, James Hanna, for joining me today. Well, thank you, Father, for having me. Yeah, and uh, so uh, when I read the book, I posted about it on social media, because that's what I do, and uh, put it on Instagram, on Facebook. And uh, Mike Aquilina, he's, he was very intrigued, and he said, I can't wait to listen to that interview. So, so hopefully Mike will uh, pick this up, and he'll listen to it, and uh, learn more about Bishop Broderick uh, from you as well. And so, first of all, I just want to mention, I, I said there in the little intro that we cross paths. You, you mentioned to me that in 2016, that you were at the Mariological Society of America meeting. I, I think that was the year you said. So um, is that right? And uh, just tell me a little bit about your involvement with the Mariological Society, uh, at, because at present I serve as the president uh, for another yeah. year. Yes, well, actually, I was there in 2016 in Colorado and um, presented a paper. Uh, and actually, it was Mike Aquilina who, actually, who encouraged me to do the research for that paper. And it was titled The Patristic Prehistory of Devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And, of course, Mike is a great uh, uh, patristic scholar. And uh, not only did he encourage me to write the paper, but he was kind enough to provide me with some resources to help in my research. So it was my great privilege and pleasure to uh, to be at the conference that year and present that paper, which has been uh, published in Marian Studies um, since then. 
Yeah, and I was there at the conference. I remember it quite well. I remember that Virginia Kimball, God rest her soul, that she also presented on the anthropological dimension of the Immaculate Heart. Uh, and there were a, a number of other great publications and presentations as well, from Father Campbell to Monsignor Culkins and others. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll be sure to link to Marian Studies and that journal article uh, and that specific journal uh, in the show notes in case people want to go over and read that. So, yeah, I do remember that meeting out there in Colorado and uh, – yeah, it was at this retreat center that was located right at a parish church. And uh, yeah, it, it was a, a wonderful uh, time there. I think that was the year I might have actually been elected to the administrative council for the Mariological Society. So um, fond memories always of the annual gatherings of the MSA. Now, uh, so you've written this biography, The Remarkable Life of Bishop Bonaventure Broderick. Now, I think... When it comes to American history, there are some bishops that might readily come to mind. Uh, being from the Midwest, I think of Archbishop Ireland from St. Paul, Minneapolis, or, or you know, Cardinal Spellman, he's a popular name. Uh, some of the other bishops uh, of New York, they're popular. We could think of great American ecclesiastics today, like Bishop Robert Barron or Cardinal Dolan, uh, to name just a few. So um, what what spoke to you about this Bishop Bonaventure Broderick? How did you find him, I guess, first of all? Because to me, he seems like a very obscure person, but somehow he caught your fascination. Well, I call it a search engine providence. Uh, I was actually on the Internet and uh, searching for, uh, actually, I had read in a biography of Thomas, uh, or I'm sorry, of um, uh, um, Jack Kerouac, that he had met Thomas Merton, the, the Trappist monk, at a party in New York City given by the photographer Robert Frank. And I wondered, how could that possibly be? How did Thomas Merton leave the Abbey Gethsemane in Kentucky to go to a party in New York? So I started to uh, uh, search, and some of the terms that I used uh, uh, included uh, St. Bonaventure College, where Thomas Merton once taught. Anyway, as you know, with the Internet, you go start to go down this rabbit hole, and one thing leads to another. And I came across this story about this bishop by the name of Broderick, um, Bonaventure Broderick, and uh, who had a gas station. And I found a couple articles on the Internet, and the one that I found that really, I think, um, led me down this path was the fact that it said that he had run a gas station as a bishop. For 40 years. Well, I knew that he was reconciled with the church in 1939. So if you go back 40 years, that's 1899. And there weren't any gas stations in 1899. So I, I knew that there were some, uh, some things here that needed to be investigated, some facts that may not have been totally accurate. And that's what uh, led me to do the research. And, uh, you know, I'm very, very grateful to have uh, found this story because I think it is uh, a story of reconciliation. I think it's a, a story that, um, well, I'll just read a little bit of a letter I received from a priest who was very familiar with the story. This is just a couple short sentences. What a wonderful story this truly is of reconciliation. 
what a lesson the priests of today could learn in knowing that in the midst of many obstacles and disappointments, this priest and bishop remained a faithful and loyal servant of the church. So I think that's true not only uh, for priests, but also for all of us Catholics, that it is a, a wonderful story uh, of reconciliation. And you mentioned uh, uh, Archbishop Spellman, later Cardinal Spellman. Well, it was actually Archbishop Spellman who facilitated the reconciliation of Bishop Broderick with the Church after 35 years of exile. Uh, regarding the gas station, I, I wish I had a photo of the bishop in front of his gas station, like you have of your family member. Uh, he didn't run a gas station for 40 years. Uh, my research indicates that it was more likely four or five years, probably from 1935 to 1939 is when he owned a gas station in Millbrook, New York. And can you just uh, tell us a little bit about the, the dates, kind of when was Bishop Broderick born? When does he die? And I think that just kind of helps situate, you know, those dates of the gas station, 1935 to 39, that you just referenced. Yeah, he was born in 1868 in Connecticut. He uh, died in 1943 uh, in New York. And uh, he's buried in Hawthorne, New York, at Gate of Heaven Cemetery. Uh, actually in the shadow of Babe Ruth, for those baseball fans. But um, uh, he he actually entered the seminary at age 21. His dad was a, um, a well, well invested in the paper mill industry in Connecticut. And in uh, Bonaventure Broderick's own words, he had worked in the paper mill for since age 14. So he had about seven years through high school working in the paper mill. And in his own words, he said he had achieved phenomenal success in the industrial world. But at age 21, perhaps it was the influence of his mother, who was a devout Catholic uh, and daily communicant, or the influence of a priest or a religious sister, or simply the work of the Holy Spirit. But in 1889, he discerned a call to the priesthood. And again, in his own words, he said he voluntarily abandoned an assured future of wealth and distinction high up in the papermaking industry, because as a priest, I wish to devote my life to the care of souls and the administration of the sacraments. So that was his thinking at age 21 when he entered a seminary. And that, that makes the exile, which happened at age, uh, in 1905, at age 34, uh, that makes the exile even more, I think, um, uh, more dramatic because here he had this vocation that he chose ripped out from underneath him and uh, again was exiled for 35 years. So tell us a little bit about that. So um, how does he end up getting exiled? It seems that there was controversy and some business dealings that his family was doing and so consequently it looked negatively on him and and so forth I think. So so. Why, in the end, was did he succumb to this exile? Well, I think one of the things that's important to understand in his story is the war with Spain of 1898. And so in the book, I dedicate an entire chapter to that, to that uh, episode because, you know, we're used to the separation of uh, church and state in this country. But in 1898, Spain was a Catholic country, and there was no separation of church and state. And the Spanish government supported the church. And in Cuba, which was uh, the center uh, centerpiece of the war with Spain, uh, in Cuba, 
after the war, the United States occupied Cuba for several years. And so Bishop Broderick, then Father Broderick, uh, was asked to go to Cuba with Bishop Donato Beretti, who was his former theology teacher at the North American College in Rome. So Broderick had spent most of the 1890s in Rome studying. He was ordained in Rome, and Donato Beretti uh, was appointed uh, Bishop of Havana in 1901, and he asked his former student, Father Bonaventure Broderick, to go to Cuba with him as his American secretary. And one of the great tasks that they had assigned to them was to make sure that the church property uh, was accounted for, because recall that the Spanish government, they were even using some monasteries and convents as barracks for their, uh, for their uh, soldiers and sailors. So there was a great uh, concern about who owned what and, and uh, getting remuneration and compensation and just, just going through all the church property and making sure that everything was as it should be. And that was Father Bonaventure's broader great assignment. Now, it happens that his uh, brother was somewhat of what we would call today a manufacturer's rep for businesses in Connecticut. And he was also in Cuba uh, representing companies out of Connecticut and New England for some of the reconstruction projects that were needed following the, the war. And so uh, there, there is no indication that he was directing contracts to his brother I think his brother was just a good businessman, but um, that was a rumor that was going around. But the greater rumor was the fact that um, Father Broderick had shared in a million-dollar commission to sell church property. Uh, and that, that was simply rumor and gossip uh, was not true. But those, those rumors uh, reached uh, Archbishop Chappelle, who was the apostolic delegate to Cuba at the time. And for whatever reason, uh, he went to uh, Rome and filed a complaint with uh, Pope Pius X about these rumors uh, and, and the gossip. And uh, Broderick at that time actually had been elevated to auxiliary bishop. You know, he went there in 1901. He spent two years as the American secretary to uh, uh, Donato Beretti. But then in 1903, uh, he himself became auxiliary bishop of Vienna. So it was late in 1904 when uh, Archbishop Chappelle filed the complaint with Rome. And uh, Bishop Broderick at the time, to his credit, um, went, followed Archbishop Chappelle to Rome and successfully defended himself. Uh, and uh, Pope Pius X said he was very impressed, I think, with um, Bishop Broderick's business acumen. And he said, you know what, rather than send you back to Havana, We'd like you to go to Washington, D.C. and be auxiliary bishop to Cardinal Gibbons in Baltimore. And there we want you to run the Peter's Pence collection on a national basis. Well, Cardinal Gibbons uh, wanted nothing to do with that, and he successfully torpedoed uh, Pope Pius X's plan. And this is where Bishop Roderick may have, uh, I call it a, a self-inflicted wound. Um, he wrote a letter to Pope Pius X. He was very disappointed that uh, uh, Cardinal Gibbons 
uh, didn't want him in Baltimore. And in this letter, um, it was misinterpreted. And I don't know if it was a problem with translation, but Pope Pius X got the impression that Bishop Broderick, who was left without an assignment at the time, um, was threatening in this letter to cause a scandal. That was not his intent at all. The bishop's intent, Bishop Broderick's intent in writing the letter was to let the Pope know that, hey, here I am. I'm a bishop in the Catholic Church, and I don't have an assignment, and that may appear to some as a scandal. And so there was this really misunderstanding that uh, shouldn't have happened, you know, but it did. And one thing I can't figure out is Pope Pius X, his pontificate lasted 10 more years to 1915. And in that 10-year period, uh, he did not communicate at all with to, to my knowledge with bishop broderick um and so he was he was left there with a hundred dollar a month pension um that they had secured for him uh, which i thought was to be an interim until they gave him an assignment an interim um uh, pension of a hundred dollars but he uh, kept that the rest of his life but so he was set adrift for 35 years until the reconciliation facilitated by then Archbishop Spellman. So did he maintain the office of bishop, like, or did he resign from the office of bishop? And so he was kind of just a man who was a bishop who no longer is serving in any chancery. Well, he he, um, he was titular bishop of Juliopolis. So, uh, you know, bishops, when consecrated, uh, have those two titles. They're either bishop of a diocese, but they also are, uh, uh, have this title of a titular bishop. And he actually was on the witness stand uh, during his exile. He did get involved with his brother because he had to continue to make a living, and he wanted to support his mother. He was very supportive and caring of his widowed mother. And, um, uh, you know, he had to earn a living, and his brother... Uh, was involved in the uh, sewer construction business in um, in Cuba. And so uh, Bonaventure, Bishop Broderick, got involved with his brother and others in, in the construction business. But there was some litigation, uh, uh, and, and so he was in the courtroom once. And when asked uh, on the witness stand to talk about his relationship with the church, he said, quote, once a bishop, always a bishop. And so what he was referring to there was the fact that although he had resigned as auxiliary bishop of Havana, while he was thinking that he would become auxiliary bishop in in, uh, Baltimore, um, he was still titular bishop of Juliopolis. And he even wrote letters to the New York Times, letters to the editor, and he always signed them, uh, Bonaventure Broderick, titular bishop of Juliopolis. Interesting. Now, there there was another scandal. So we've talked about a few of the scandals. And, and I think what's central to these are the sin of gossip. So uh, you have kind of the dealings in the paper industry with his family and contracts or whatever. But then you have this kind of the gossip that emerges because of this former religious sister, Margaret Helen Bolin, who then mm-hmm. becomes the caretaker for Bishop Broderick's mother, and then who would be the housekeeper for Bishop Broderick. And so there, there was some rumors, I guess, uh, that people began speculating that, that they were a married couple, um, things of that nature. And that kind of 
continued to harm the reputation of Bishop Broderick uh, in his life uh, just serving in the world, uh, but maintaining that office of bishop. So uh, what can you say about those rumors uh, about that fabled relationship? Well, Helen Bolin, Margaret Helen Bolin, uh, was a religious sister uh, out of St. Louis, and um, she went to Cuba uh, in 1901 very briefly. Uh, she had professed, she finished her novitiate, uh, two-year novitiate in 1899 in St. Louis, Sisters of the Good Shepherd, um, but she was professing temporary vows each year. Um, for five years before the vows became permanent. And she was sent to Cuba as a uh, 20-year-old religious sister to work at a a newly founded reform school for girls in Havana, Cuba. So imagine the culture shock. She's 20 years old, comes from St. Louis, Missouri, arrives in Havana uh, right after the war with Spain, and is tasked with uh, staffing this uh, reform school for girls. And the culture shock, I think, was just, I think it was eye-opening for her. Um, I read a little bit about the reform school and some of the issues that they ran into. Uh, The intentions were certainly good, and I'm sure there were religious sisters who had the gifts to, um, to work at the school. But I think Margaret Helen Bolin, discerned that this was not her calling. Um, And she actually, uh, on the eve of her profession profession of temporary vows for another year, she actually left the religious order. And so she went to New York, and this is where um, Bishop Broderick's care for his mother really surfaces. Uh, I think there was some connection there with the uh, the uh, Secretary of Treasury would be the name we would use here of Cuba because he was funding this re- reform school for girls. And I think that's how the bishop met uh, the former religious sister who discerned out of her vocation. But he was looking for a companion and caretaker for his mother back in New York. And so my understanding through my research is that Margaret Helen Bolin uh, did not she left the religious order to go and care for the bishop's mother in New York. So um, that was one of the things that also piqued my interest in this. She left in 1901 to go to care care for um, uh, Margaret Broderick, the bishop's mother, who, who eventually passed away in 1917. But uh, these, these rumors really surfaced in 1912. First of all, that he was the governor of New York, uh, William Salzer in 1912 um, accused Bishop Broderick of, in fact, he actually had a, uh, he actually handed out a piece of paper that said that the Bishop Broderick was living with a nun he stole from a convent near St. Louis, uh, which of course wasn't true. Um, Helen Boland left the um, Cern out of the vocation and left of, of her own free will. And also in 1912, you mentioned this uh, rumor about marriage. Um, That came out of a conversation that was uh, held at a lunch table at a convent for the Sisters of Mercy in Baltimore. 
that somehow this rumor surfaced and it was investigated by the, the New York Archdiocese at the time. And of course, it wasn't true. Uh, but that's one of the things that piqued my interest in this story also is because Bishop Broderick, uh, while he did nothing wrong in Cuba, uh, apparently Governor William Salzer had because he was previously a congressman with the House Ways and Means Committee uh, after the war with Spain. And here we have Bishop Broderick in 1912 on the front page of the New York Times. So he's not hiding from publicity. He's on the front page of the New York Times um, saying that William Salzer, if elected governor of New York, which would soon be impeached because of the corruption that Broderick knew about, and it came true. William Salzer was impeached. Um, so that's another thing that piqued my interest is here we have a bishop on, on the front page of the New York Times in 1912 involved in, in predicting this impeachment of the governor of New York. And I just felt it was a story that needed to be dug into a little bit deeper. Well, that's very interesting. And, you know, I love the fact that you found this obscure figure of American church history. And I say obscure, but uh, according to your bibliography, he's mentioned in a lot of different American history textbooks. And, you know, as I was unpacking, I just moved to a new parish and I'm unpacking my books and putting them on bookshelves. And I have a shelf of church history and so I was putting some of my favorite American church history books there and, you know, kind of wondering now, oh, I wonder if Bishop Broderick is in there. Um, but so we have this bishop, you know, lots of gossip going around. He's exiled, removed from, you know, being kind of this an auxiliary in office. He's an auxiliary in title as the titular bishop of this one area. Um what characterized his life of exile? So, uh, of course, as a bishop, I would imagine that he said Mass every day. So, does he say Mass in the home so he doesn't go to the parish church? Does he go to the parish church and just sit in the pew? Like, what would his practice of faith and religion have been as kind of this exiled bishop? Well, he um, uh, everything that I've come across with uh, some third-party research that actually Archbishop Spellman did his due diligence before reconciling uh, Bishop Roderick with the church. And I came across some correspondence, um, gratefully through the Archdiocese of New York archives, that um, indicate that the bishop said Mass daily in his home. Um, he also wore his pectoral cross while working. Uh, he, he would work, he had a little bit of, of farmland in each of his residences. He lived in the Hudson Valley all of these years in, in a couple different towns, uh, Saugerties for one, Millbrook, New York for the other. But um, he always seemed to maintain a little bit of um, property for farming, growing his own fruits and vegetables. And um, uh, he always wore his pectoral cross, even when working on his little uh, farm. So, uh, but there's no indication that he spent any time in local parishes. I believe he was emotionally attached to this Peter's Pence assignment that never came to fruition because over the years he mentioned several times that he was in the diplomatic service of the church and was just waiting for further assignments. Interesting. But one thing I think, I think one thing that really characterized his life, though, was the lack of resentment. Um, there was a certain humility about him um, that... Um, uh, you know, he, he, you know, he suffered this injustice, um, uh, 
but he did everything he could to maintain his dignity. Uh, he um, went out and made a living. He became active in the communities where he lived. Uh, in the 1930s uh, in, in Millbrook, New York, while the gas station was open, he was writing a little article, a little column for the weekly newspaper called Things, Events, and Men, where he, um, uh, he had free reign to write about uh, any social issues that might come to mind for him. Now, that's the other thing about him. He was a wordsmith. Uh, and I have a couple of his letters uh, in the book, uh, including a letter to the New York Times where uh, he wrote in 1921, I believe, defending the Jewish people. Um, and um, uh, he also wrote a little piece. If you don't mind, I'd like to read this just short piece he wrote about the scene at his uh, mother's deathbed. Please. Yeah. This And, and Helen Boland's meshing in here, too. So. He wrote this uh, in 1941. This is 40 years after Helen Boland went to care for his mother. Two days before her death, my mother lapsed into a comatose condition. Summoned by a telegraph from a distance of about 400 miles, I traveled by automobile day and night until I reached her bedside. Almost immediately, my mother regained consciousness opened her eyes and greeted me lovingly. Helen was kneeling on one side of the bed. Turning to Miss Boland, she thanked her for her long years of affectionate care to her, told her what a kind and dutiful son I had always been, assuring her that I had never caused her any sorrow, and asked Miss Boland to care for me as carefully as she had for her. Then turning to me, she exacted a promise from me that I would always protect and care for Helen. This promise I cheerfully and sincerely gave. Within an hour, my mother's soul left this earth for its home in heaven. So you can see he uh, he had a firm grasp of the English language, and uh, uh, he was able to share that with the folks in Millbrook through the weekly newspaper. Yeah, I'd be curious what people thought of those weekly columns. Now, um, I made the note here that um, maybe they were called roundtable columns. I know you mentioned another name, or maybe the roundtable was the paper. I'm not sure. But uh, have you read all of those columns? And, you know, what I would love to see is I would love to see them all collected together so that we could read kind of this corpus of writing of Bishop Broderick. Well, that would be wonderful. Now, the ones I came across, I'm very grateful to the Millbrook Public Library. They had uh, most of his columns on, uh, uh, there's an old term for it. We used to call it, uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, but uh, uh, they're not digitized, uh, but they're, they're, they're copies. And um, so I was able to, I have probably three dozen of them here, and I don't know that that's the total corpus, but... Um, uh, that's a great idea. Yeah, it would just be interesting to see kind of are there common themes, like what what did he like writing about? I, I think you'd probably learn a lot more even than what your biography presents to us uh, about him. Now, you know, one of the things I'm curious about, of course, this is a podcast about the Blessed Virgin Mary, and he was an auxiliary bishop in Cuba, which means there there is a Marian shrine in Cuba, Our Lady of Cobre, for example. Uh, but... In your investigation of his life, did you come across any semblance of Marian devotion of the bishop? Uh, I did not. Um, it, 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 it's interesting that 
for someone who was such a wordsmith that the correspondence uh, is very minimal. Um, most of what I found was in the Archdiocese of New York archives. And I would have hoped to have found more letters than I did, but I didn't, I, I, I didn't see that. I mean, it, I, what I get is uh, why well, I'm convinced that um, uh, there was an aspect of Marian devotion with the bishop is his devotion to his own earthly mother. Um, the way he cared for her uh, over time. Uh, And certainly he's a a model of patience, a model of humility, in my opinion, Uh, the lack of resentment being uh, one of the things I often think about, suffering injustice um, and doing so without complaint and and quietly. I mean, he never sought publicity for his uh, uh, situations. Uh, He just uh, kept living one day at a time. Yeah. Until I, 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 I almost call it, I know I'm playing fast and loose theologically with the term miracle, but um, his reconciliation with the church in 1939 in Millbrook, New York, I, I do like to call it the Millbrook miracle. Uh, when Archbishop Spellman uh, sought him out in his little farmhouse behind his little gas station. Yeah, isn't that very interesting? And I, you know, it was kind of like you're building up to it. And so you're just waiting for this. And, you know, just the way you told the story, I don't want to ruin it for people that want to pick up this biography and read it. But like, essentially, the Archbishop, uh, Cardinal Spellman just walks up to the bishop's home and casually knocks on the door, you know, and begins this conversation. And, and uh, ultimately, Bishop Roderick is restored to ministry in the church and uh, is given an assignment in the diocese, uh, in the archdiocese. And uh, then he lives out the rest of his life until the Lord calls him home uh, shortly thereafter. So, so it is this beautiful redemption story. And that, again, is something in your subtitle, uh, the redemption that he experiences, that all the things of the past now are gone, and now he is able to fulfill his ministry uh, finally once again. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think, um, I mean, kudos to Archbishop Spellman. Uh, he was had been recently consecrated, and it was just four months after his consecration as Archbishop of uh, New York when he sought out, and he had no obligation to do so, but when he sought out um, Bishop Broderick uh, in, in the fall of 1939. And I think there's a beautiful letter that um, uh, later uh, Cardinal Richard Cushing, who was then the auxiliary bishop of Boston in 1939, but again later Cardinal Richard Cushing, he wrote uh, he wrote to his friend uh, Archbishop Spellman, and he, here's what here's what he wrote: uh, "I am returning the letter in regards to Doctor Broderick. What a beautiful act of charity you performed! I never read anything that made such a profound impression on me. As I frequently said, the hand of the Lord is upon you." To me, you have started a new era in the hierarchy of this country, an era of heart that will bring souls nearer to their spiritual leaders. May God give you the strength to carry on. So I think it was a beautiful act of charity, because as, as I say, Archbishop Spellman was n- under no obligation to uh, to even visit Bishop Broderick. Yeah, very interesting. Not, not only did he visit him, but at, you know he did reconcile him with the church and... And the, the friendship they had, 
must have been incredible. I mean, from 19, December 1st of 1939 till uh, Bishop Broderick's death in 1943. In 1942, uh, Archbishop Spellman, and this was not a eulogy, this was a year before Bishop Broderick passed away. Um, at that time, Bishop Broderick was the chaplain at the Shriver Hospital and Home in Riverview, New York. And a new wing was being dedicated. And Archbishop Spellman went to the hospital to dedicate the wing. And Bishop Broderick, as chaplain, was there in the audience. And here's what Archbishop Spellman said. Now imagine someone saying this about you, or you saying this about someone else. And here's what Archbishop Spellman said. Quote, The greatest thing I have done for my soul and the greatest gift I have brought to the people of the Archdiocese has been in bringing Bishop Broderick to New York. Unquote. That's quite, that's quite, uh, quite a testament. Right. And, you know, speaking of his death, of Bishop Broderick's death, it'd be interesting if we could hear the funeral homily that was preached by the celebrant of uh, this ecclesiastic and uh, to see, you know, how much of the past they incorporate or what they chose to focus on uh, in that funeral homily. Well, the last paragraph of the book, uh, or last couple paragraphs, is a portion of, of that uh, homily. So well, very, I won't read it. <laughs> sure. No, that, that'll have the last word uh, as the person turns the last page of, the, of your manuscript there. Now, um, you, you mentioned he was buried uh, in Queen of Heaven Cemetery and uh, in the shadow of Babe Ruth. So as part of your own study and research of his life, did you make kind of a mini pilgrimage, if you will, uh, to his grave? Did you pray at his grave? Yes. Uh, he's buried in the Sisters of St. Francis uh, plot. The Sisters of St. Francis were, um, they, did, they staffed the Shriver Hospital and Home. So he was chaplain not only to the patients, but to the sisters there. And... Um, um, there's some wonderful correspondence from the sisters about his um, influence on them. So he's, he's buried among his beloved sisters of St. Francis. I think the best part of the pilgrimage for me was going to Millbrook, New York. There's still a gas station on the property, uh, but the house he lived in behind it is, is torn down. But about 50 yards to the right of that gas station is a path. And the path is the path that led to his house. And it's the same path that Archbishop Spellman walked up in 1939. Mm. And so I was able to walk that path. And the it's, it's hard to explain, but um, there was a palpable sense of um, the hand of the Holy Spirit <laughs> being on uh, Archbishop Spellman when he walked those that path. And, and the interesting thing, too, also is he made that trip in secret. Uh, Bishop Broderick had no idea it was coming. No, no one knew he was going. He was in Millbrook for another reason. That was to accept a gift of property to the diocese. But while he was there, he had the local pastor drive him and drop him off. He said, just drop me off. Don't park. Just drop me off. And uh, he's the only one that who knew where he was going. What do you think Bishop Broderick would say about the fact that you've studied his life and written his biography? 
Wow. Well, I would hope that he would think that I've done a service. I mean, I hope this book does a service to his legacy and clears up any misconceptions such as these rumors that he, you know, he was married and he was living with a nun he stole from a convent, um, that he was involved in this corruption in Cuba, which, by the way, uh, a magazine printed in 1910, a magazine printed uh, those accusations. He sued the magazine and he won. So there's no indication that he was involved in anything. And Cardinal Spellman did his due diligence and contacted a lot of folks who knew him and knew his story. And to a one, they said he did nothing wrong. So I hope the biography is a service to his legacy, and I hope also a service to the church as well. Yeah, now you sent a copy to me. Uh, I'm a priest, and you mentioned the other priest that kind of wrote those two sentences you quoted earlier, just about, you know, what a remarkable life that he lived and how it can speak to us today. Uh, Have you heard from any bishops who've encountered Bishop Broderick? Maybe they knew about him from church history class, but now that maybe you sent them your book or they acquired it. Like, have you heard from any other people within the church uh, about your biography and kind of its reception? What, What are their comments? Well, I have, and I've been in, invited to um, to Hartford to speak at the uh, Archdiocesan Convocation in the fall to the clergy, um, because he he was one of their own. You know, recall that uh, Broderick was a, a, a priest of the Hartford Diocese, so he was one of their own. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, and, of course, I, I had to send a copy to Cardinal Dolan, since it was... Um, Archbishop Spellman, who reconciled him with the church. And um, uh, so I have sent a few copies out, and um, the, the priests that have uh, read the book have all responded pretty much in kind that they do see it as a, a story of reconciliation and, and one that is um, pertinent to uh, having, a, having the virtue of patience in a lot of cases and um, dealing with obstacles and disappointments. Yeah, you mentioned in Cardinal Dolan, he is a church historian, and he loves American church history. So I can imagine that not only as the Archbishop of New York, but just kind of in his own academic curiosity, might be interested in the story of uh, Bishop Bonaventure Broderick. And I think, too, I'm, you know, I'm just thinking of some of these. There, there have been bishops in the United States most recently. You know, some of them have been removed from their office of bishop, you know, from being the, uh, the ordinary. Uh, they've had to resign, and they resign early, and maybe they resign over the fact of how they mishandled a sexual uh, abuse. That was the case with Bishop Flynn, for example. You have some bishops who are resigning over kind of the mishandling of ecclesiastical organization in their diocese. I, I think of Bishop Holly, for example, in Memphis, or or um, uh, the, the recent resignation of the bishop in Knoxville. So, so you have bishops who are kind of leaving the ordinary post of bishop, and now are kind of in the quiet light, whatever. And somehow I think maybe the story of Bishop Bonaventure could maybe speak to them as they quietly live out their priestly and Episcopal ministry. Well, I think the, the, the word you use there quietly uh, is relevant. Um, there was a letter, a, a brief review of this book in a, a National Catholic magazine, and someone wrote a letter to the editor after reading the book and the review, 
and said, um, today, and I, I can, I'll quote this, today His Excellency would face the temptation to trade his dignity for a YouTube channel or a GoFundMe page where he could sustain a pity party for life. There he might receive adulation, but he would never be the hero he actually was. So you know, I think that's another uh, one of the things I think has been important in this whole discussion uh, is a fusion of horizons, you know, contrasting the uh, early 20th century with where we you know, where we are today, 100 years later. Um, and uh, you know, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. But you're right. I mean, the, the quietly quietly going about his life and and that's what i meant really when i thought that he really is an example of a certain humility um and uh patience and tolerance never once never once did he publicly speak ill of the church and i found very little evidence of any resentment and correspondence um you know certainly certainly nothing um worth mentioning yeah you know it's it's a lesson that can even speak to me because you know sometimes there are those those little dings or slights that you get, uh, and maybe you feel, you know, some sort of emotion towards the the church hierarchy, and uh, and so maybe Bishop Bonaventure can speak to to all clergy uh, in that regard. For for me, I am a lover of obscure figures, so that's why I was really drawn to this book. Uh, I've spent a lot of time reading and popularizing Father Daniel Lord, who was an American Jesuit, died in the 1950s, lived in the early 1900s, wrote a lot. In fact, I'm just finishing a book of his on the mystical body of Christ and hope to doing a comparative analysis between his theology of the mystical body and Archbishop Sheen's theology of the mystical body. They both wrote books on the mystical body of Christ in 1935. So I thought it'd be interesting to to do a little study on that. But um, there, there are all these little hidden figures of American church history. And I'm just wondering, are there any others that you have found that you think are worth your investigation and potential further study in writing? Well, I'm currently working on a biography of... Uh Father Edward Vatman, V-A-T-T-M-A-N-N, who was a um, uh, the first U.S. Army, first uh, chaplain appointed to the U.S. Army after the Civil War. And he served from wounded knee um, it, through the First World War. And um, he's a, another interesting character. Um, so I'm looking forward to finishing my research on that. Well, very good. I look forward to reading the fruits of that research as well. And so today we've been talking about the remarkable life of Bishop Bonaventure Broderick, Exile, Redemption, and a Gas Station. This is your biography about Bishop Broderick. It's available wherever you buy Catholic books, especially online. Uh, you can buy it through Amazon. I'm sure there's other places, but if people want to learn more about your writings and your work, where would you direct them to go? Well, I have a website, jameshannawriter.com, J-A-M-E-S-H-A-N-N-A-W-R-I-T-E-R.com, and my contact information is there as well. And I'll be sure to provide a link uh, to your website in the show notes and where they can buy the book. So what a great privilege and a great honor and blessing uh, to be able to speak with you today, James Hanna, about Bishop Roderick, and to introduce this obscure figure who has a lesson for all of us. So thanks so much for your good work on this book. 
Well, thank you, Father Edward. It's been my privilege to be with you today. Thank you.